Now, the one who protects us all from prattling prognosticators and perfidious pundits. I say, America, stay out the bushes. Look for the union label. That's to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. From my cold, dead hands. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It's time for the Alan Nathan Show. Here he is, the longest-running nationally syndicated centrist host in the country, Alan Nathan. Welcome, everyone, to the Alan Nathan Show, the kingdom of militant moderation, where we want the Republicans out of our bedrooms, the Democrats out of our wallets, and both out of our First and Second Amendment rights. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today while he's on assignment. Well, let's take a little journey away from this sordid world that we live in. Let's get away from all the politics. Let's have a magical journey into fantasy for a moment. What could be better than to escape from the cares of the world by enjoying a rousing tale of heroes and monsters, dragons and magic? Let's play some Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, wait a second. The woke scolds are already there. The censors have already colonized Dungeons & Dragons. You can't do that. They're taking it over. They've got political ideologies being imposed on this role-playing game. And uh, when you get there and you crack open your brand new D&D books, you're going to find woke ideology written right into those pages looking back at you. There are some things you're not allowed to daydream about anymore because the inclusiveness police have decided that it is racist and wrong. This has been going on for a while now. It's been getting worse and worse. Dungeons & Dragons is a big deal. It's a popular game. Been around since the 70s. Of course, you've probably heard of it by now. It has a pretty big popular culture footprint these days, thanks to a number of things. It's prominently featured in the TV show Stranger Things, which is a huge hit over on Netflix. And there's a movie in theaters right now based on Dungeons and Dragons called Honor Among Thieves. And it's a very good movie. It did very well over the weekend. It's very fun and entertaining. But the actual game itself has been getting PC'd to oblivion over the past few years. These woke people got into positions of authority over the game and they started saying, well, this is going to have to change because it's insensitive. So they started ruling parts of the classic fantasy universe or out of bounds. And the latest thing that they've done, the new decision by the woke scolds who now run Dungeons and Dragons, is that we can't have half elves and half orcs anymore. Half elves and half orcs are supposed to be people whose parents were human and then a member of this other fantasy race. And by now, I probably don't have to tell you what elves and orcs are because everybody saw the Lord of the Rings and that's where the whole idea comes from. You, you have elf, elves and orcs and in the, uh, in the fantasy world of D and D, there are people who have mixed parentages and they've been called half elves and half orcs. And that's got to go. The, uh, the woke uh, scolds that run the, the D&D franchise now, they actually have a department that does this. They were explaining this decision, the people who write the game, and they said they have an inclusivity bureau, literally a gang of political commissars, and they have to submit everything that they write to the commissars. And they look it over and they say, no, no, this is unacceptable. This violates the message uh, that the only political message anyone is allowed to hear anymore. So this is going to have to be changed. And they've decided that half elves and half orcs are no bueno and they have to go and they're not going to call them that anymore which is uh, i hate to tell these guys they they strike me as being not terribly intelligent people so maybe that maybe their education was a little bit off so i'm going to tell them something they were never taught in school the standard that they're applying now by saying you can't have a half elf or a half orc that's the white supremacy standard kids that's the one drop standard from back in the day, back in the days of real, honest to God, hardcore racism, not the stuff we, we fritter and obsess over today, but real deal, you know, bust your face in racism. That was one of its core ideas. If you had one drop of black blood in you, you were black or Asian or whatever, you know, it didn't matter. They, they, they use this, this principle all the time. And now they're saying they think that's progressive and enlightened. If you have one drop of elf blood in you, then, then you're an elf and uh, calling you a half elf is, is racist. This is going to come as a terrible disappointment uh, to Elrond of Rivendell, who is one of the most famous characters in fiction. He is known as Elrond Half-Elven because he is half an elf. He was played by Hugo Weaving in the Lord of the Rings movies, major, major good guy over in the Tolkien books, and he's been canceled. Somebody's going to have to go to Rivendell and maybe we'll send a hobbit to cushion the blow and tell him that he's been canceled because you can't be a half-elf anymore. This 
is just stupid. It's so mindlessly lowbrow and guttural and stupid what these people are doing. But it also goes to show you how totalitarian the woke ideology is down to its very core. There's nothing these people can leave alone. They can't let you have so much as a daydream that isn't politically acceptable to them, that doesn't conform to their ideology, to the messages that they think everybody needs to be sent every minute of every day. And in order for their ideology to prevail, they have to terrorize you. They have to make it everywhere. You have to think it's inescapable that if you sit down to play this fun little game with your friends and you pull out your books and your crazy sets of dice and you're going to sit down and have a good old rousing game of D&D, you need to be afraid that you're going to say something wrong. You're going to do something wrong. You're going to be insensitive and uninclusive, and you're not going to be gender fluid enough or whatever else they've decided you have to be. So this junk is now being written into their rule books. So it's blasting right in your face. There's disclaimers in the rule books that say that you can't be insensitive. And we who wrote this game are hundred percent politically correct. And you need to be too, if you want to play our game and yada, 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 this, this stuff is just pervasive. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. And it's invading your headspace, your dream space, your, the, the world of fiction. The Dungeons and Dragons movie, uh, by the way, this movie Honor Among Thieves that came out now, when this movie was being marketed some months ago, the people who made it decided to give an interview where they said they greatly enjoyed emasculating their heroes. And in other words, to send woke signals of, of feminism and female superiority, and whatever else that they, they made this movie so that all the guys are just weak and helpless and, you know, everything else. And they had a good time doing that. And now that they've emasculated their male heroes, now they can send the correct political messages through the movie. That's not the movie. That isn't what's actually in it. Not at all. The The whole point of the movie really is that the main character is kind of learning what it means to be a man. And he comes out at the far side of it, a better one for his experiences. It's, it's the, it's a thematic through point through the, the movie. That's his character arc, basically. And more than one, there, there's another male character who likewise learns a little bit about how to be a man, about how to be more confident. It's the opposite of emasculating their heroes, really. If you go to see the movie, if you actually watch it, there is no messaging, no politics in it. It's fun. It's just like a nonstop, crazy, funny comedy thrill ride. But these people, the interesting thing is that the people that wrote it, created it, were promoting it, they felt like they had to lie and say that it was filled with woke messaging in order to get the right audience motivated. They felt like maybe the, the PC audience wouldn't want to go see this thing about manly men fighting dragons. So they had to go out and tell them that it was all full of political signaling that they would find acceptable, even though it really isn't. And that kind of, that's a pedigree that goes back a, a long way. I can remember back in the uh, 1999 when the Star Wars prequels came out and George Lucas was running around saying that his, his writing in these prequels was so politically correct. And it was all about how Bill Clinton was a good guy. He actually said something dumb like that, you know, it was one of the, the themes that they were sending. And the, the actual, it was supposed to be a uh, commentary against what he saw as, as Republican interventionism or something. It was just stupid because the movie is actually the opposite of that. The entire movie that he made is a rather bold cry for interventionism. If you actually watch it, I mean, it's, it sends almost exactly the opposite of the political message he thought it was supposed to be sending. And he probably knew that. But when George Lucas went and gave interviews to people back in 99, he thought he had to say stuff like that in order to sound sufficiently enlightened and politically acceptable. And that was 20 odd years ago. It's gotten a lot worse since then. The, the PC stuff, the woke stuff has infiltrated every aspect of our culture. And by the way, one of the dumbest talking points that people on the left are trying to deploy, they're scared now because woke is becoming toxic. People are laughing at it. They know it's bad and they know it's stupid. So they're laughing at wokesters. So now they're trying to claim that there's no such thing as woke and nobody can define what the term means. And that that's their new talking point, which is ridiculous. Everybody knows what wokeism is. It's all around you. That's like saying, what's air? I mean, wokeism is infused in every aspect of our culture and politics today. And if anybody still needs it defined, I'll go ahead and do it for you. It's a coercive totalitarian ideology that believes certain of its convictions are absolutely true and that no dissent from those convictions can be allowed, including speech that criticizes them. So there's, there's your wokeism. That's what it is for those of you who think you can hide under a rock by pretending that nobody knows what it is. Everybody knows what it is. Everybody knows that it's bad, but the problem is that it's powerful and it has the commanding heights of culture and politics underneath it. Where do you go 
to escape wokeism. It doesn't really matter that the number of people who really believe in this totalitarian leftist ideology is very small. It doesn't matter that the, the transsexual population, which is the vanguard of wokeism now, they're the tip of the spear, is this infinitesimal fraction of the actual population of the human race. It doesn't matter that their numbers are puny because they're good at making you scared to disagree with them. They're good at making you afraid to argue or feel like if you speak up, you're, you're going to be condemned or banned or, or maybe lose your job. And also, they're really good at infusing this message everywhere. That's where the total in totalitarianism comes from. It's inescapable. And if you think back to the beginning of the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, that was one of the things that the revolutionaries of the day, who would be the, the godfathers of today's wokesters, that's one of the things they went after right away. They thought the old culture that they liked was inescapable, that its values were everywhere, patriotism, family, uh, business, capitalism. They thought those values were infused into everything, and the first thing they did was start tearing that down so that you didn't get that message everywhere you turned. Now they control everything, and they see it differently. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. New research released to mark the International Day of Math reveals that math is the subject most American adults say they're afraid of, but is also the subject they most want their children to be good at. So to help them support their children in building confidence with numbers, a new, fun and engaging computer game called Teach Your Monster Number Skills has hit the market. Junaid Mabeen is a math expert from Number Skills, and he says building your child's confidence from an early age is vital. Getting kids confident with numbers from a very young age is so important to their long-term success in mathematics. And the reason I use Teach Your Monster Number Skills with my own children is that it teaches them about numbers, about how creative and, and playful numbers can be. It's very fun and also educationally very powerful. You can download this great game today. Just search for Teach Your Monster Number Skills online. It's available on all desktop and mobile devices. Trust me, you won't regret it. This is sponsored by IBM. Job seekers, students, and career changers want to pursue roles in science, technology, engineering, and math, but aren't familiar with career options. At the same time, online training and digital credentials are emerging as a recognized pathway to opportunity. Misconceptions about the cost of training and what's required are often roadblocks to success. To tackle this and bring STEM education closer to underrepresented communities, IBM SkillsBuild is announcing 45 new educational partners. IBM SkillsBuild is a free education program focused on underrepresented communities in tech, helping all develop valuable new skills and access to career opportunities. Justina Nixon St. Till, IBM Chief Impact Officer. Technology training can have a transformational effect on a person's life. IBM is committed to raising awareness of the many roles that exist across industries in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. IBM SkillsBuild continues to grow with new partners around the world, working together to skill 30 million people by 2030. For more, skillsbuild.org. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jason Derulo. I love that music connects to people all over the country. But unfortunately, so does something else. Childhood hunger. 15 million kids struggle with hunger right here in America. And yet, every year, billions of pounds of surplus food in the U.S. go to waste instead of going to the children in need. Feeding America is working to change this. The Feeding America nationwide network of food banks rescues this surplus of food to help provide meals to families in virtually every community in the United States, including yours. But they just can't do this alone. Join me in the fight against hunger in America. For more information on what you can do to get involved, visit feedingamerica.org. That's feedingamerica.org. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. What is dedication? I am the father of a nine-year-old little girl and a six-year-old little boy. And I find fatherhood both relentlessly challenging and relentlessly rewarding. My daughter is biological and my son is adopted. I love them both so much. From the morning when you wake up to putting them to bed at night and every moment in between, it really is so special. And boy, is it exhausting. 
One thing that I fear about being a parent is the future for my children. I think a parent's job is to protect our children, but also prepare them for the world so they become good, kind human beings. But I'm also hopeful that the future holds a more inclusive and compassionate world for them. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News. You can find my writing at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. Joining us now to talk about the Trump indictment and their aftermath is Robert Romano, Vice President of Public Policy at Americans for Limited Government. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, it's great to be on again, John. Thanks for having me again. So where do we sit right now? The the earthquake has passed. The aftershocks are still rumbling. This this happened, and we're living in the post-Trump indictment world. What does that world look like to you? Is this going to be an era of more politicized prosecutions? Are the Republicans going to back down from this? Is this going to help Trump or hurt him? And is that what the Democrats want? Well, I think it raises fundamental questions, frankly, uh, um, going all the way back to the founding and the framing of the Constitution. Um, particularly if you check out James Madison in Federalist Number 10 when he talks about the mischiefs of faction and how this, uh, the Constitution, as constructed as a federal union of uh, states um, with, with the Republican feature, that it ended by bicameral legislation by distributing powers to such an extent that you could mitigate the problems of factions operating in this way, which is essentially just well, the jungle round up my political opponents like they did in the French Revolution. So I think that what we're at the risk for here is uh, not even a gradual but a rapid escalation if the Republicans decide that they want to do the same thing as well. Um, but unless they're going to go and arrest Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or Jimmy Carter for some contrived crime, I'm not certain that they'll uh, meet up with any cent, uh, standard of deterrence. They think, oh, we need to deter them in order to prevent this from happening. It's like it's already happened. How do we prevent it from further escalating into something much, much worse where, you, you know, this, the Roman Republic fell, um, you know, in similar ways um, once the consuls started warring with each other um, and, and, and towards the end with Caesar and Pompey. Um, and Caesar emerged victorious, and then there was no more republic, um, particularly after the assassination, because it never ends. It's never going to be, um, you know, they, they prosecute our guy, and it's like, oh, we're too scared to prosecute their guys. If it's the, we're going to prosecute that guy, and then they say, we'll prosecute this guy. And so you could have a very slippery slope here. And, but only partisans support this kind of thinking. If you look at Quinnipiac polling on this, 70% of independents think that the um, indictment of Trump was politically motivated and not about the law. 93% of Republicans agree it was politically motivated. That's predictable. But what if it had been lock her up, Hillary Clinton, that was being prosecuted? I bet you the numbers would flip where Republicans were saying this is about enforcing the law and Democrats would say this was motivated by politics. But still, independents would say we don't want any of this stuff. That's why they're independents. They fear partisans. And this is why. Well, they they do, but I don't know that I see a great sense right now that independents are getting ready to depart the Democrats in droves over this. They might not like it. They might know it's a political frame-up job. It's obvious, and they're just saying the obvious they can see with their own eyes. But, you know, it doesn't really feel like a groundswell movement here that they're going to punish the Democrats viciously at the ballot box for daring to do this. And if the Republicans don't retaliate, a lot of people say this could become the new normal. If, if this doesn't become two-way partisan warfare, which as you said, a lot of people don't like, and it's horrible, then it's going to be one-way partisan warfare, which is worse. Which is what we've had. I mean, maybe they should have thought about that when they were going after Scooter Libby. Um, I haven't seen any uh, response, though, that gives me any confidence in the system that it's not going to – if we think that pr prosecuting Trump as a political opponent is banana republic – and, and then you have to go with what Trump said during the Republican National Convention in 2016 when they were chanting, lock her up, and he waves his arm, dismissing that, saying, we're going to defeat her in November. That was the quote. 
he didn't embrace Locker up at the convention. Um, maybe that came later at the debates and so forth. But it, it, the fact is, is that this is why it's dangerous. And by the way, if you want to look at how independents are responding to the indictment of Trump, well, how would they respond to an uh, indictment of Democrat officials? It, to say it goes over like a lead balloon, um, if you were getting a 70, 26 percent um, differential on a poll, well, it sounds like it would be very unpopular if Republicans were to do that as well. And, oh, by the way, it, it, goes in, it flies in the face of the constitutional system that is supposed to mitigate and cure the mischiefs of faction, not by embracing them, um, but by setting forth rules for the civil society. Uh, Alexei de Tocqueville spoke of how we have we, the condition for the civil society is to respect the fact that we have reciprocal influence on one another. And I would add Madison to that to cure the mischiefs of faction. If Republicans and Democrats cannot agree to have a constitution or to have a country, um, we're going to have just the law of the jungle. And if we don't want to live in the law of the jungle, I don't want my kids to grow up in the law of the jungle. I'll tell them to to pay attention to something besides politics because it's dangerous. Well, you know what? Up until yesterday, I didn't think there was much of a sense that Democrats were worried about reciprocity here. They didn't seem to have any great concern that this would come back to bite them. It was just a thing they were going to do now, this unprecedented thing, and they seem to have no fear of retaliation. But yesterday, I noticed a lot of the left-leaning pundit class were looking pretty glum after the arrest was made and the indictments were out on the table now. And they just, I guess they thought this is such a weak case, they started having second thoughts and wondering if doing all this as a giant stunt was going to cost them more than it gains them. I think it politically does hurt them. Um, it's certainly helping Trump in the Republican nomination. If you look at Trafalgar, before the indictment, Trump was up, I think, by 14 points. And then after the indictment, he was up by 33 points over the cl- his closest rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, making it more likely he'll be the nominee, therefore more likely that he'll be the next president. So if the idea is to prevent Donald Trump from being president again, it seems to be backfiring because Trump can't be president if he's not the nominee. Well, it seems, I'm sure you've heard a lot of people uh, saying that they think that's what the Democrats want. They want him to be the nominee because they think they can blow him away in 24, that he, it's almost a lock that he'll lose, and they, and they really want him to be the Republican standard bearer. And one of the reasons they think that is they look at the midterms, and they see how poorly his candidates tended to fare through that, how the Democrats did so much better than anyone thought they would during the midterm elections. And Trump was a big part of it, Trump and his candidates getting shellacked, so that there's that theory that this is exactly what they want. Republicans got more votes in the 2022 midterms uh, in the House of Representatives than in any other midterm cycle. Uh, You can look at presidentials, but I'd skip those if you're looking for midterms. Um, It definitely got way many more votes than they did in 2014 or even in 2010. Um, So that was a record for Republicans in terms of turnout. Um, So I think the Trump base was clearly um, showing up at the polls, uh, particularly for the House. Democrats showed up as well, though, um, and Democrats were campaigning against the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court. So Democrats had increased turnout. That was unexpected because nobody was necessarily expecting the Dobbs decision until it got leaked. And they got the prime that pump for, uh, you know, several months um, because it got leaked to boost turnout on their side. Um, so I don't attribute that to Trump at all. I think that the House of Rep- uh, the Republicans did actually quite well in the midterm elections, considering what they were up against. Uh, with that counter cycle going on. It's only because um, the Democrats were the out party that they didn't achieve 2018 um, levels of, uh, of turnout. But suffice to say, Republicans won the popular vote in the House of Representatives or else they would not have a majority. Well, the other problem that you might have going into uh, 2024 is that you could say the Republican base, if it's Trump and they're rallying around him, is going to be very energetic. The Democrat base would be very energetic in the other direction. They really don't like Donald Trump. They don't want him coming back. They think he's the devil. So they're going to show up in huge numbers. And it's going to boil down to the the middle of the rotors, the moderates, the independents. And you look at polls like the ones we're talking about, and you can see they don't like the politicized prosecution. They're maybe not liking Trump. Who knows which way they'll go? It's going to be interesting to see it play out. Robert Romano, Vice President of Public Policy at Americans for Limited Government. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm John Hayward, your guest host. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. 
From NAACP Image Award-nominated author Elise Bryant comes a new rom-com about two teens who overcome misconnections and find their way to love. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling follows two people who seemingly have nothing in common, but after a year of chance encounters, begin to think the universe may be telling them something. Dungeons and Dragons-obsessed Reggie and emotionally bottled-up Delilah meet for the first time on New Year's Eve and again on Valentine's Day and on random occasions throughout the the year. They're drawn to each other, though they are each too insecure to be their true selves. So what happens once they realize they've each fallen for a version of the other that doesn't really exist? Author Elise Bryant. This is a sweet and funny romantic story in which the characters learn to overcome their fears and discover who they truly are. I hope readers enjoy going along on this ride with Reggie and Delilah and maybe learn something about themselves along the way. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling is now available wherever books are sold. Spring is here, and there's no better time to try something new. Take a taste of Coke Zero Sugar and enjoy real Coke taste and zero sugar. Now available at participating Burger King restaurants. Try Coke Zero Sugar with your favorite food from Burger King. Satisfy your hunger and enjoy Coke Zero Sugar with a piping hot breakfast sandwich, like a sausage, egg, and cheese croissant. Sizzling sausage, fluffy eggs, and melted American cheese on a toasted croissant makes for a delicious breakfast to start your morning right. And don't forget the crispy hash browns. Or if the flame-grilled Whopper sandwich, BK Royal crispy chicken sandwich, or chicken fries are your fave, you are in luck. All Burger King menu items pair perfectly with an ice-cold Coke Zero Sugar. It's the perfect no-sugar sparkling beverage that goes great with everything. Take a taste of Coke Zero Sugar to enjoy spring your way at Burger King, where you rule. At participating U.S. Burger King restaurants, sponsored by Coca-Cola. You know that feeling? Like every door is closing and you just can't see a way out? Being unemployed, underemployed, or just out of school feels a lot like that. But when you find the right tools... Suddenly, everything just clicks. Getting on that path may be easier than you think. A good place to start? Go to findsomethingnew.org. At findsomethingnew.org, you have access to resources that help develop new skills. Skills that will position you for careers in today's growing industries. From healthcare and manufacturing to cybersecurity and alternative energy. Plus, you can take advantage of online courses, certification programs, apprenticeships, and more. So you can take yourself from unemployed and uncertain to empowered and prepared for what's next. Find your path to a new career today. Visit findsomethingnew.org. A message from the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. Joining us to talk about President Trump's indictment is Paul Kaminar, Lead Counsel for the National Legal and Policy Center. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, sir. Yeah, thanks, John. Glad to be here. So big event here clearly has changed the game. How do you see this going moving forward? Is Are these charges likely to stick? Is this going to go all the way? Or is this going to backfire because the case is too weak? Yeah, I, I think it's going to backfire because the case is too weak. Uh, the indictment itself is 34 counts, but it's basically one count repeated 34 times. And all it says is that there was a false business entry for repayment to uh, Michael Cohen uh, uh, and that it was done to uh, conceal a crime. That's all it said. So it doesn't say what the crime was. But there was a separate document uh, that was called the Statement of Facts, and I've never seen where there's a separate document. If there's going to make the charges, you make it all in the indictment. Anyway, that Statement of Facts basically regurgitates all the old stuff about the Stormy Daniels uh, 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 hush money payment, etc. And the theory that Alan Bragg or Alvin Bragg is making is that uh, uh, he's saying that, well, these false business entries are uh, a misdemeanor. It's a, like a jaywalking ticket. So in order to elevate it to a felony, uh, I'm going to say that the false business record was done to have uh, commit a felony, and the felony apparently is that the hush money was made as an in-kind contribution to the Trump 2016 federal campaign, and aha, there's a election law violation. Well, that that theory falls apart on at least three grounds. One, Alvin Bragg has no jurisdiction to go after anybody for a federal election violation. Uh, number two. Uh, both the Federal Election Commission and the Justice Department, which does have jurisdiction over uh, federal election campaign violations, took a pass on these uh, uh, allegations. And number three, the Justice Department got burned on this theory when they tried to use it against Democratic Senator John Edwards back in 2011 where John Edwards got $900,000 from a mega-Democratic donor as hush money for John Edwards' mistress and his love child to keep it secret from John Edwards' wife, who was then suffering from breast cancer. And they brought a case against John Edwards. The jury in North Carolina acquitted John Edwards on one count and was a hung jury on the other counts. And the Justice Department said, look, we're going to drop the case. We're not going to retry you, even though we could. Because they realized that this theory uh, didn't uh, make legal or common sense. And so, uh, you know, it didn't work with John Edwards. They shouldn't have gone after him then. And they shouldn't go after uh, Donald Trump now. But this prosecutor ran for office vowing to get Trump as his campaign uh, uh, message. And uh, that reminds me of the uh, Joseph Stalin's uh, uh, head of his Soviet secret police, whose motto was, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. And that's what's going on here. He was out to get Trump and he jerry-rigged this nickel and dime business, false business entry into a major felony case. And even Democrats and liberal media pundits are kind of admitting that this is kind of weak tea here. And uh, so I, I think uh, this case will be dismissed. Uh, they also should have problems with the statute of limitations. Uh, the statute of limitations for a misdemeanor is two years. That's come and gone. Uh, felony is five years. This happened in 2016. Yeah, there were some payments made in 2017, or well, even adding five years to 2017 comes to 2022. It's now 2023. So I'm not sure how they're going to survive motions to dismiss on that grounds. And there'll be other motions to dismiss 
by Trump's attorneys that are due to be filed uh, by August, I believe the court set the date, and then there'll be another hearing in this case in December. One of the things I think the public finds so vexing about all of this is that there are so many campaign finance laws, they're so complicated, and yet they are so rarely, or I should say not fairly, enforced. We all know that it's been a partisan game for a long time, and if you can get a Democrat state to get somebody indicted, they'll do that, and then the Democrats walk free for doing the same thing. And the other thing that I think really frosts people watching this from afar is that we see serious crimes that are not being prosecuted, including by this particular DA, this this particular AG, he's not letting, or he's letting violent criminals walk the streets. He's putting them out as fast as he can, but he's going to spend all his time on some obscure campaign violation for political gain. That that just should yeah. be making more people's blood boil than it is, but I think it's making blood boil nonetheless. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, Alvin Bragg yesterday said, these are serious felonies, and we're not going to normalize these kinds of serious crimes. Yet at the same time, he's not going after uh, regular crimes, street crimes, where people are being pushed off the subway platforms into oncoming trains, uh, the carjackings, the, the violent uh, muggings and so forth. They're letting them run free. So it's clear that this is a political uh, vendetta uh, that, that's going on, and the double uh, uh, sense of justice here uh, is, is the hypocrisy is really uh, amazing here where they're not going after not only those crimes, but political political crimes. I mean, what's going on with Hunter Biden? I mean, they've been investigating that for the last four or five years, and those are serious crimes. There's uh, money laundering, uh, tax evasion, uh, millions of dollars coming from a China energy company where Hunter Biden should register as a foreign agent of, of, of China under the Foreign Agents Registration Act that the National Legal Policy Center filed a complaint with. Yeah, so what, what, what's going on there? Uh, and so uh, it really uh, makes people uh, upset about it because it, it's really debasing our, our criminal justice system and, and uh, uh, you know, it should not continue. Well, you know, we were told for so many years that there's too much money in politics, so we should be upset about that. We should be upset about corporations using their money to influence politics. And most especially, we were supposed to be enraged by dark money, which was yep. this evil, nebulous force of doom that was that was corrupting all of our politics. And then a funny thing happened over the last couple of years. The left took over all the corporations. They started getting all the corporate Wall Street money, and they right. became the kings of dark money beyond all doubt. Dark money from Republicans is a drop compared to dark money. Well, Democrats, and all of a sudden, yeah. it's not a problem anymore. Yeah, well, speaking of dark money, uh, this Alvin Bragg himself uh, uh, was supported by George Soros, who gave uh, a million dollars to this group uh, that then turned around and funneled a half million dollars into Alvin Bragg's campaign. Uh, and in terms of uh, this alleged uh, violation by Donald Trump, uh, the uh, thing is that he's using his own money, which is totally legal under election law, where a candidate can spend as much of his money as he as he wants to, because the whole purpose of the disclosure laws is to see who's out there influencing the candidate. And so, uh, you know, uh, because the, the theory is that a candidate cannot corrupt himself. So, uh, you know, Donald Trump was using his own money to repay uh, uh, Michael Cohen for the hush money payments, which, by the way, the hush money payments are totally legal. Uh, there's no allegation at all that somehow that was a crime. Uh, and then the other irony about all this is that under the election laws, if, in fact, a campaign committee gets an in-kind contribution from a corporation or a source not allowed, the law says, You've got to repay that person with campaign funds. So if Trump had repaid Michael Cohen with campaign funds, there'd be uh, a call that, oh, my God, Donald Trump is misusing campaign funds for paying for uh, personal expenses. And yet when he uses personal money for it, they're saying that's a violation of the campaign laws. So it's sort of a catch-22 here. 
I've heard a lot of concerns expressed that this nakedly political prosecution is going to be the starting gun for a new era of partisan warfare because the Republicans are going to retaliate and politically indict Democrats and then they're going to retaliate and it's going to be all out war. I just have a hard time believing that Republicans are actually going to do that. Do you, do you think they're really going to go after Biden, after Hunter Biden, after anybody uh, the same way? Well, yeah, they, they, they are doing that and rightly so by the House oversight committees to get Hunter Biden's bank records, etc. But those are serious crimes. They're not nickel and dime crimes that are being manufactured like the Democrats are doing. Yeah, that, that's a real point. That's an excellent point. And yet it seems like the real crimes are the last ones to get prosecuted anymore. Paul exactly. Cameron, lead counsel for the National Legal and Policy Center. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm John Hayward, your guest host, sitting in for Alan. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. The pandemic is just one factor that forced companies to rethink the way they conduct business. In addition to remote employees, companies are uploading more data to the cloud and workers are using a wide variety of apps and devices. As a result, businesses are more susceptible to security breaches than ever before. For 10 years, the open directory platform provider JumpCloud has helped businesses improve security and minimize vulnerability. Security continues to be a top concern for businesses. According to JumpCloud Vice President Eric Brown, organizations need to reconsider their approach. Identity is the new center of IT and the foundation around which all IT infrastructure should be built. That's where we at JumpCloud come in. We help companies and people make work happen with secure, frictionless access to the apps and data they need with an open directory platform designed for identity transformation. To learn how JumpCloud can help your business, visit JumpCloud.com. Vitamin B12 is important for supporting not only our metabolism, but also our energy levels. Our brain and our nerves need certain vitamins like B12 in order to function properly. Even if you're eating all the healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and getting you know great sources of protein, it's sometimes the case that you can become deficient in one or more nutrient, and that's where supplements can be helpful. So if you wanna support your B12 levels, Jaro's Methyl B12 is a great supplement to consider to optimize your B12 levels. This type of B12 is recognized by the body, so it's delivered to your cells more efficiently. It's also been shown that it is a great way to make sure that you're getting a highly absorbed form of vitamin B12 and one that's gonna be retained better than other types of B12. You can learn more at jaro.com. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, was a great kid. He loved sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to an after-school event, which was about a mile from our home. I was driving through a green light when a car in cross-traffic ran a red light and drove right into the side of our car, killing Joe. The driver was talking on her phone, so she never even saw the red light. She was so absorbed in her phone call. Before the crash, I didn't realize just talking on a cell phone while driving was so dangerous. Now it's something I think about every day. According to the National Safety Council, about one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. When you're behind the wheel, put away your phone. For Joe and for the thousands of needless deaths every year, remember, there is no safe way to talk on a cell phone while driving. Find out more at nsc.org slash callskill. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes? Their age? The way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who got got his first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat? Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries. I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council.
The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear. Accessibility. Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans organization has provided more real-time, ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at pva.org. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen is meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today in a California meeting that has enraged the Chinese Communist government. They are furious that this is taking place. They've been issuing increasingly dire and threatening warnings that it must not happen. They've vowed to retaliate in some way against it. And when the former Speaker of the House, McCarthy's predecessor Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, went to Taiwan, they staged a bunch of really aggressive military parades or exercises Uh, naval and sea power all around Taiwan just to show off how tough and strong China was and really to send the message that even if they don't attack Taiwan, they could blockade it if they really wanted to, and that would be disastrous for the Taiwanese economy and way of life. They're an island, so they really depend on trade for quite a lot of things, and if they were blockaded, it would not be easy for them to withstand a siege like that. So you would imagine that if they're going to retaliate again, they're probably talking about something along those lines. They would have another intimidating demonstration of force. This is a pretty clutch moment for Taiwan, and by extension, really, for the cause of democracy. And I know people don't necessarily like to think about this in terms of a conflict that we need to be engaged in. When you say that democracy is in danger, that authoritarianism is on the rise, that Taiwan could be obliterated, a peaceful democratic nation could be wiped out by China at any moment because they could decide to invade it, then people understandably say, but does that mean we have to go fight and die for them? Does that mean we have to get involved in another giant war? And increasingly, I think people ask, are we capable of it? We used to have an unquestionable questioned level of supremacy, military naval supremacy, and now you look at the state of affairs in the U.S. military and you wonder if we ought to be picking fights with China, Russia, or any other near-peer adversary because could we even win with things being the way that they are? So that's a question. But even if that wasn't in question, then the, the principle of getting involved in foreign wars to defend democracy you know, or any other peoples uh, is something that people ask about. I do think it's important, and I think it's not an easy question to answer. One way or the other. We're spending gigantic amounts of money in Ukraine right now, for example, and we're often told that we have to, that we have to go all in on protecting Ukraine against Russia. And there are some important principles at stake there besides the fate of the Ukrainian nation. We have a people under attack, so we naturally sympathize with them. But we also look at Ukraine as a democratic country, an imperfect one. Ukraine has a lot of problems and a lot of corruption issues over there. So by no means a a glittering example of democracy, I guess, but it is a democracy. and, And Russia really is Ukraine is far more democratic than Russia is. So to see Russia attacking them in in this vicious way in an attempt to eliminate them as a nation and reabsorb them, it's something that we want to oppose. But the question becomes, how hard do we want that? Do we want to send unlimited money, unlimited material support to Ukraine? Do we know where all that money is really going and what they're doing with it? And what about boots on the ground? Are we ready to escalate this if necessary by sending in American forces? Are we ready for what Russia would do? So these are these are not easy questions to answer, and all the more so in Taiwan's case, because it is an island, and if there is a fight there, it's going to be a brutal one. Here with us to take a look at it is Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, U.S. Army retired, a senior fellow with Defense Priorities. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
So we've got McCarthy meeting with Tsai Ing-wen in Los Angeles and California. The Chinese are, are bent out of shape about it. They're issuing all kinds of threats. Taiwan just lost a major dip, uh, diplomatic ally. Honduras uh, broke off their ties with Taiwan. So increasingly looking like Taiwan is isolated and dependent on us to, to hold off the Chinese. What do you see as the situation here? Is there an imminent danger of situation escalating in Taiwan? Well, I mean, that, that's, that's a growing concern. And these kinds of actions are, are not helpful. And, you know, and, and look, the United States shouldn't be afraid of anybody, but that also means that we should not be foolish and, and like, basically poking a hornet's nest and hoping or, or expecting the hornets never to come out. And that's kind of what this is here. Here's the bottom line. Any time the United States takes any action internationally, wh- whether that's militarily, diplomatic, or any other way, that we need to be having the very focus of what we're doing. How is this going to affect the United States? Will this help us? Will this hurt us? Will it be neutral? You know, those are the kind of things that have to be absolutely out in front. When you apply that standard and that uh, framework to the, the meeting between the, the Speaker of the House and, and Tsai Nguyen, that does not meet the standard. That does not help our country at all. There's nothing that this uh, meeting does that that was going to, you know, just going to be an improvement from what we had before. It's not going to improve our security, but it is going to, again, poke a stick in the hornet's nest because this is something that the Chinese feel very, very emotionally strong about. And they have been very clear about that. Now, look, we have been saying, I mean, they have been saying the Chinese since 1949, that they will use force to reunify the country. And they've never said anything besides that. But they also haven't done it over that period of time. And they have said they want to have a peaceful unification. And they're willing to spend a lot of time to do that in ways that that somehow can be mutually agreeable, as they tried to do or they did do with, with others. But we are now in a position to where we're saying yeah, no, I don't, I don't want you all to reunify under any conditions, and we're going to keep moving things in a direction that moves Taiwan away from that past your red lines. And at some point, uh, it's, it's entirely possible that China could say, okay, this is no longer even possible unification under peaceful terms, and now we're going to move in the non-peaceful terms. And here's the bottom line for the United States right now. We say we don't want war across the Taiwan Straits, and yet the actions we're taking make it more likely, not less likely. This, our, our activity to the Taiwanese is not going to deter China. If anything, it's going to incite them more. It's often been said that maybe China had second thoughts about invading Taiwan after seeing how Russia has fared in Ukraine, that it hasn't gone the way the Russians thought it would. So maybe now the Chinese are a little bit less uh, full of their oats about their ability to do that in Taiwan. But I wonder if maybe another counter lesson being drawn is that they're watching us spend huge amounts of money, pump huge amounts of equipment we can't easily replace into Ukraine. And maybe they're wondering if we have gas in the tank to do another intervention like that in another part of the world at the same time. Well, that's certainly that's got to be part of their calculation. But but I argue uh, from a military perspective, if anything, this uh, this situation in Russia and Ukraine has refined China's uh, operations and, and allowed them to avoid some mistakes that they might have made and to actually have a better chance of success. There's also a couple of key, very, very key uh, differences between the two situations that does not uh, augur well for the Taiwanese. Number one is that the uh, the Taiwanese, uh, you know, they, they don't have land that can be you know, re- replenished like Taiwan does. And the other thing is uh, the Taiwanese don't have eight years of combat experience. Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, U.S. Army retired. Thank you very much for joining us with those thoughts. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, your guest host for today. Thank you very much for joining us on this hour of The Alan Nathan Show.
The opinions you hear on the Main Street Radio Network are those of the host, callers, and guests, and not necessarily those of the station, Main Street Radio Network, its management, or advertisers. The information on the Main Street Radio Network does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or securities. So please, consult a professional before investing. If you have any questions or comments about Main Street Radio Network, contact us at 703-719-0433 or at our website, MainStreetRadioNetwork.com.